Have you ever been to Laneway, Joe? No. Look, I'm going to say I'm a fairly uncool person and it's only now in my 40s I can say out loud, I don't really like being in crowds and I don't like queuing for loos and I'd rather not go to anything like a laneway or a big day out. I've been to lots of that sort of thing. Never been to laneways, but I know it's a no from me. But I wish everyone has a great day. Wear your sunscreen, drink water. Each to their own. I'll be home. It'll be much nicer. Yeah. <laughs> Spatially more comfortable. Raj, Florence and the Machine, timeless sound, isn't it? I've, I know the song, but I, by a strange coincidence, I've always had, I shared this with Joe, I've always had this kind of mild claustrophobia. As a result, I've always steered clear of um, large music festivals and felt kind of slightly guilty and uncool as a result. So Joe and I have this in common. And when my partner met me, it was one of the first things she found out that surprised her. Um, uh, how reluctant I was to kind of go to a summer festival. And, and just as a, a very, very quick question, um, so you've never been to a festival together? I, we have never been to a no. music fest. We've been to kind of sit-down concerts. Where, I you know, love a sit-down concert. But, uh, but Give me a numbered seat. Yeah. Orderly and entry, maybe some orderly kind of out. magnum-based ice cream at the interval, and I'm there for it. But, yeah, I know. Like you, Raj, I always felt a bit embarrassed when I was younger, but now... I'm claiming my space as an uncool non-concert goer. All the best to the laneway attenders and also to our panellists for your beautiful honesty. A quick traffic update for your evening commute in Auckland. Due to a truck breakdown on State Highway 16, the left northbound lane is blocked after the Stanley off-ramp. Pass with care and expect delays. That's State Highway 16. The left northbound lane is blocked after the Stanley off-ramp. Well, Brie and Camembert cheese are on the verge of extinction. The French National Centre for Scientific Research has shocked the world, announcing that the strain of penicillin mould used in the production of soft cheeses is losing its ability to reproduce. The mould is reaching a genetic dead end. To discuss, Franco Cesar, Director of the Grand Gourmand Cheese and Food Consulting Business. Welcome to the panel, Franco. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Well, that sounds very dramatic, Franco. Are our soft cheeses in danger also? I know, I know. I mean, after uh, the news of the uh, olive oil shortage, uh, uh, this is another uh, blow to uh, any food around the world. Uh, it's a bad news if it, if it is true. You think it's true or you don't think it's true? Well, uh, researchers uh, are, uh, are always, uh, um, you know, uh, they need some kind of follow-up and, uh, and some kind of uh, validation. Uh, my question is, uh, is uh, the penicillin camembert no longer reproducing or uh, it cannot reproduce uh, at the, the speed uh, required to meet the global demand for French-style cheese? Well, they're saying it's losing its ability, but my question to you is what about the ability of the mould to reproduce here in New Zealand? What are you experiencing or what are you hearing about New Zealand cheeses? New Zealand is, has got a still a strong umbilical cord with uh, uh, European-style cheeses, so cheeses that come from the old world. 
Europe. Uh, in, in the majority of the French style cheeses produced here in Ireland, they use penicillium candidum or penicillium camembert uh, imported from Europe. So obviously the largest producer uh, and developer of these uh, um, um, uh, cultures are European. However, uh, uh, we have the ability in New Zealand to uh, create and recreate our own cultures. Uh, it just comes down to how uh, quick and willing we are to um, become more independent at creating our own, our own identity uh, uh, when it comes down to uh, cheesemaking. So just before um, Raj and Joe with their questions, do we have anything to worry about here uh, with soft cheeses and being made in New Zealand? Anything to worry about, yes or no? No. My my answer uh, is straight after hearing this news, there will be nothing to worry about. So there is no need to rush to the supermarket <laughs> and buying bulk and uh, freezing it. Uh, big no-no, never freeze cheese, never freeze camembert or bread. Joe, do you eat soft cheese? Do you like it? I do. I mean, I was going to rush to the supermarket and buy some anyway just to eat because um, I love soft cheeses. But, Franco, are there not other cheese moulds out there? Because wasn't there a new strain found in Oamaru by Whitestone, a new blue mould? Absolutely. Uh, that one is, that was a, a, a the classic example I was referring to. If cheesemakers here in New Zealand really want to uh, create their own identity and develop some unique cheeses, we have got, uh, uh, we are so lucky in New Zealand to have a, a unique uh, flora, uh, you know, with our bushes and, uh, and uh, environment that uh, uh, goes from the coastal environment to alpine environment. So uh, uh, finding nature um, uh, molds, uh, which are a similar strain of the Pellicillum camemberti, is very is very easy. And uh, uh, cheesemakers like Whitestone Cheese in Omaru, they've achieved that one a couple of years ago, and uh, I believe they are still uh, uh, going ahead uh, with their uh, fabulous cheese. So is it possible this might just bring more diversity into these kinds of cheeses? We'll get a greater range of different flavour profiles and, and different tastes and textures? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, uh, all the cheeses, they've got one thing in common, and that is, of course, uh, the main ingredient, milk. And we know that in New Zealand we are blessed with uh, the production of some some uh, uh, fantastic milk. Uh, uh, but the, the, the reality is that, uh, um, you know, we, we comes down to also consumer education. Uh, 25, 30 years ago, New Zealand consumers were uh, only uh, uh, cheddar block. Uh, users, consumers. Uh, in recent years, we actually we have indulged that one, ourselves uh, uh, slowly have become more adventurous, trying you know blue cheeses and and washed ranch cheeses. So uh, moving away from uh, the, the classic cheese platter, which will include uh, you know a, a camembert with brie, a slice of blue cheese, and uh, a, a a wedge of a semi-hard cheese, uh, could be easily broken by introducing uh, new cheeses and a um, and and just spice up. Uh, you know, the everyday cheese platter. Raj, are you adventurous when it comes to cheese? I am, and as a lover of soft cheeses, I'm, I'm, um wanted to kind of um, reiterate Joe's call that, you know, this acts as a as a wake-up call 
to enhance and, and be mindful of maintaining the diversity of those key fungi, um, not just for a greater range of flavors that we can look forward to, but also to protect their very existence. Um, I mean, but because the news is good from and reassuring from Franco, I mean, I wanted to share that one of the things I loved about the way this story was presented um, and knowing how much the diversity and quality of their cheeses matter to the French is that I could really imagine it as an animated movie in which, first of all, you have this diabolical threat to the cheese ecosystem. And then there's this one cheese which has been harboring a strain of fungi <laughs> in it that can save the day. So, you know, I, uh, I'm going to keep thought, an eye out for a movie. Like, I thought the same, Raj, but I thought it was a very, it was sort of a triptych of really middle class horror films. You yeah. know, part one, olive oil runs out. <laughs> right. Part two, soft cheese is under threat. Franco, Tesla's too cannibal. <laughs> I know that you're busy. You're busy, Franco, but perhaps you could start on a script idea and Joe jo and Raj will help you out there with these with these different episodes. Thank you so much for the insights, Franco, and for the fact that we don't have to worry and get into any sort of panic cheese buying at this stage here in New Zealand. Cheese hoarding. Thank you, and uh, thank you for supporting the cheese industry and uh, uh, loving cheese. Long live cheese. Thank you, Franco. RNZ National, it is 17 minutes to five. Before I go to our next topic, just very quickly, Raj, Joe, someone has gotten in touch. Finland students have 190 school days with 10 weeks summer holiday and holidays in autumn, Christmas and winter. And another texter has said Finnish schools sit within a vastly different social system with many more well-being supports in place for parents and children. Not sure about how long their summer holiday is, but we've just heard it there. Ten weeks. So there we go. Something to ponder while we stop worrying about hoarding cheese, at least for the moment, unless we really must for our well, own personal I mean, it's supplies. A hobby, but, you know. <laughs> it's a nice hobby, I'd like to add. Uh, already this year, the government has made the decision to send six New Zealand Defence Force personnel to the Red Sea. Requests for help are expected to increase. But the NZDF is facing high levels of attrition. In the 20 months to the 28th of February 2023, the NZDF lost 30% of its full-time uniformed and trained personnel. They are 1,300 uniformed personnel and 130 civilians short of what's needed. To discuss this with us, Massey University Centre for Defence and Security Studies Director, Dr William Hovud. Kia ora, William. Uh, Susanna. Talofa. Well, that's a lot of people leaving the Defence Force, Dr Hovud. Why? Oh, I'll, I'll talk to you that, but before okay. I have to admit something to the panel, I have to admit I've just put my six-year-old in front of a screen so I can talk to you today. <laughs> so it's happening here as well. Um, so why are people leaving? I mean, the line has been that the MIQ deployment um, was the thing that really kind of put put the, the, the sword into the NZDF in a sense and that there were young people going into those hotels not doing the job they were signed up for. But that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. The, the issues are pay, lack of opportunities for deployment and cost of living around the bases. Like how do you buy, if you're in Devonport, how, how, do you, how do you rent or buy a house if you're an 18 or a 19 year old in the Navy there? And then there are sort of social costs living in, in places like Waiuru around families and relationships and what happens when you go on deployment and all those things have kind of come to a head and created a high form of attrition within the New Zealand Defence Force. 
Joe, have you got a question? Yes. Um, I mean, Dr. Hover, there's been some sort of discussion around some of those issues around cost of living, around the standard of, of housing on the base and housing available to staff. But but I wondered if it was also perhaps a, a cultural issue. I feel like we've heard a lot in the news cycle around um, issues around bullying, around drinking culture, around a space that's perhaps not inclusive to women or members of the rainbow community or gender minorities. I mean, is that part of the problem? Yeah, look, I think that's a really good question, Joe. Um, it's not the part of the problem that's being articulated. The bits of that are being articulated, the five things I've just rolled off. But I think we see strong secular change. We've got an ageing population. We've got young people not interested in physical fitness in the same way who aren't as fit. And they're not interested in necessarily joining a hierarchical um, organisation with a discipline-based culture. So um, there is this kind of question around how do we deal with uh, attrition? Is it a do we need to shift the culture in the organisation as well? And I think that's, that would be a very that's a very challenging space for the organisation to think about because it would have to learn new ways of training people to do and engage in warfare. Um, just a little note here. Bone was well, not such a little note. Bonuses of up to ten thousand dollars are being paid to retain people, and the um, NZSAS uh, has been offered thirty thousand retention payouts. I mean, that's a lot of money to keep people. It is a lot of money, but, but it's not working. You- well, I guess there's a couple of things. Some of those soldiers, um, some of the, not the SAS necessarily, were, were getting paid less than minimum wage at the start of last year. Um, so the salaries aren't that high. And in terms of the SAS, these are highly, highly trained specialists. Um, and a $30,000 um, bonus is still a lot less than they would get if they were employed elsewhere to do that work. So I I think that's the sort of situation that they've found themselves in. But then it starts to get around questions of equality and fairness in the rest of the organisation. And so if you're paying uh, one of those particular specialists extra money, how do you feel if you're a naval rating in Devonport and you're not getting that? So again, there's there's all sorts of challenges there that that the organisation is having to address. Raj, have you got a question for William? Yeah, I was going to ask, like, if if you had, say, um, the f- uh, a couple of recommendations you could make to to the new defense minister about how best to to signal um, a kind of wraparound support that would take into account, on the one hand, um, young people as they are now with their needs, um, uh, but also support with with cost of living, support with um, with. Uh, salaries not keeping up. What would be your kind of key measures that you'd recommend to to signal support for um, our defence forces as they are and and what they need now? Yeah, so I think there's probably three places we can think about that. The first is recruitment. So it's got to be an it's got to be an attractive organisation to join, and the processes for recruiting um, they also have. So when you train a, a soldier or an officer, a junior officer, there's quite a high attrition rate even in that training. So that's got to be thought about very carefully. Uh, and then in terms of retention and attrition within the organisation, pay rates. But I, I have a colleague, Dr Nina Harding, and her view is very, very clear, and she spent time embedded with with young soldiers, and she says if they don't have opportunities to upskill, they'll leave. And so her key message in her research is, is that 
soldiers at all levels and all times of their career, if they have clear opportunities to upskill, whether that's a deployment overseas, whether it's something coming in, clear messaging about that and certainty, that's the sort of thing that will keep them invested within the organisation. It's interesting because we've just had someone text in, William, uh, NZ Defence Force needs to change its approach. There are hardly any deployments. The scope for interesting work is limited. The pay is low. Lifestyle is not that great. The 20-year pension's gone, so what's the motivation to join? Australia pays people who does who do these jobs, military, cops, nurses and the boonies, way more, plus large housing subsidies. So I guess that's what you're speaking to there. But the question I have as well, William, I'm sure we all do, is how does this attrition challenge impact our capabilities? So it, it certainly does. Um, Air Vice Marshal Kevin Short said last year with Cyclone Gabriel that they weren't able to um, pr- provide their preferred response. We see problems with platform supply, but we can't necessarily put all our ships to sea. We can't necessarily put all our planes in the air. And that's called an issue of concurrency in that the New Zealand Defence Force is not able to easily do more than one thing at once at any one time currently. And so that is... Uh, a problem for the organisation but it's also a national security problem for New Zealand Um, and and that's something that we we really do need to worry about and that's the argument for investment I guess. I guess also William that becomes um, a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle where there are fewer staff, the staff there are under greater pressure, they've got skills that are attractive in a civilian life they're they're more tempted out of the organisation. We've seen that in a lot of different workforces where as people leave the workforce, it becomes a less attractive place to work. That's exactly right. And that, I think, is some of the reason that we're seeing uh, an investment in cyber deterrence, cyber security, which is an attractive uh, career. While we're seeing talk about rise of putting money into autonomous combat systems, drones and things like that, which, one, they don't, they're more efficient in terms of human resources, but, but two, they also just... They don't need, yeah, exactly, they're just more efficient. So you'll see those in terms of that, that human issue, that the um, personnel issue that the New Zealand Defence Force is, is facing. And so we're seeing, along with uh, the decline in, in, in numbers in the organisation, a change in warfare and the type of warfare and the type of platforms that the organisation is looking to use. Raj, would you like to have the final question with William? Uh, no, I would just like that... Um in, I saw that there's a plan coming out in 2024, and just to to um, for the government um, to show um, through their gestures and actions enough to recognise that the people who do have a career in the forces make sacrifices along with their families that are unique and unusual, and um, and to show every way that the rest of us kind of recognise and support that. So I hope that that plan kind of contain some of William's own recommendations and others like it. Actually, William, just to finish, do you think that requests for help and deployments uh, for the NZDF will ramp up in the next year or so? Look, I think the government's saying we're we're facing a complex international environment, and if we also look at that in combination with climate change and our responsibilities to the Pacific, I absolutely think so. i just say one last thing. We always focus on the negatives. There are a whole lot of people serving our country in in that organisation who do an incredible job, and I think sometimes when we focus on the negatives, we forget that. Um, And so 
it's also the, the attrition problem and the retention problem is really affecting them as well. So that's just something else we should just add into the mix. Yeah, that's a really good point to finish on. Thank you very much. That's Dr William Hovard. He is the director of Massey University Centre for Defence and Security Studies. Well, we're coming up to six and a half minutes to five. There have been two unconfirmed sightings of a rogue wallaby in the Port Hills. There have only ever been 14 potential wallaby sightings in Ōtautahi since 1997, but wallaby numbers have boomed in the last decades, perhaps now in the hundreds of thousands. It seems it's a big number. But it's so, but it's so unlikely for Christchurch... But, or and, they need more eyewitnesses to confirm the wallaby sighting or sightings. To fill us in on wallabies, Environment Canterbury's wallaby programme leader, Brent Glentworth, is with us. Kia ora, Brent. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well. What can you tell us about these unconfirmed sightings, Brent? Yeah, so uh, both reports in January this year of... Um, a suspect wallaby around the Victoria Park area on the Port Hills. Um, and uh, all reports outside the, um, the the wallaby containment area, which is down here in South Canterbury, between the Waitaki and the Rangitata, we take very seriously. So we've had a contractor or two contractors comb that area looking for sign and prints, and um, nothing has been confirmed, but that's not to say they're not there. So... Mm. Um, hence we're asking for, you know, it's a high use area for public runners, cyclists, sightseers. So we're just putting the word out there. Keep your eyes open in the Port Hills. If you see a wallaby, we would love you to try and get a photo of it or uh, prints or um, feces. Um, but we follow them all up anyway. So there potentially could be an animal there or two, um, but we just need some more information around that. So wallabies aren't usually in Ōtautahi. We don't usually, you don't usually have them in Christchurch per se. Correct. So How do they the, get there? Uh, well, there's two mechanisms for wallaby spread, and one is passive, so ma- animals moving by themselves, and that normally occurs around their containment area down here in South Canterbury, through so South Bank of the Waitaki or through uh, the Mackenzie Basin, and that is where 90... Eight percent of our reports come from. However, we do from time to time get animals reported in places where they're miles away from uh, the containment area. So these fall into that category. We we have found um, a wallaby in the Port Hills before, back in 2001. Actually, it was in Charteris Bay on the peninsula, and we suspect that was a pet, either released or escaped. A pet. Yeah. So um, you know. Th- th- Wallabies are classed as an unwanted organism, so it's, a, it's illegal to hold them as a pet. Some people don't realise that, but there are steep fines for people um, breaking the law by conveying, holding or capturing wallaby without a permit. Um, so, yeah, back in 2001, there was one captured there. We've actually found three others since that time um, in Christchurch and in, in residential areas, again, taken as pets. Um, mm-hmm. Primarily from you know a joey stage when potentially a hunter would shoot one down here in the Hunter Hills and think that this would be a great idea to take the joey, but uh, just nice. reiterating, yeah, that is illegal and um, you know it, it's it's not the first time one's been reported in Wellington that since um, succumbed, 
so um, Marlborough, um, Amberley, we've had pets there. Um, so the lookout now is the Port Hills. We're gonna, yeah. I'm going to have to leave it there, but I think people have got the message, Brent, and all going well. If they've got any sightings, they're there to get in touch with Environment Canterbury. Yeah, or um, if they just put in their search engine, reportwallabies.nz, and um, that go, takes you straight to a URL where you can, um, we can capture details and follow up. Good on you, Brent. Thank you very much. Well, that, that brings us to the end of the panel. Raj, Joe, it's been great to have your company. There's been a text come in, Joe, so I want to quickly squeeze it in. Hi there, Joe. Hey, just a shout-out, as I know you love dahlias. We are having our annual dahlia show tomorrow at the Western Springs Community Garden Hall, opposite Western Springs from 10.30 to 4pm. There will be plenty of beautiful blooms to see. Oh, well, I'll be there. Don't you worry. And I would say as well, I think the National Dahlia Show is coming up this month, and it has an open class. So if if you're growing them at home and you just want to take part in the show, go along. I think it's happening in Palmerston North. We've had so much feedback, and for you too, Raj, and it's been great to have your company. Thanks to everyone for um, all of these uh, texts that have been coming in, in and around supermarket theft. There have been so many, and I know I have been bouncing around with you both. Raj, what would you like to add just as we come up to Lisa Owen and Checkpoint? Anything to add from either of you? It's been great to have your company. Oh, thank you. My last thought was this word attrition that comes up with teachers and nurses and soldiers and the army. How attrition is this word that keeps coming up and it's it's so unfortunate. Wishing you both very well. And for all of our listeners, wherever you are, enjoy the weekend. Manuye le weekend.